You found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. David Bright, thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. We have some more great emails and messages from you guys to get to this week. I have to say, I am really forever like stunned and humbled by your participation in this podcast, everybody who writes in. Uh, thank you all so much for sending these incredibly thoughtful emails seemingly every week and putting so much time and effort into them, really. Uh, anyway, without further ado, let's get to them. We're going to uh, start actually over on Facebook where we got a message from a listener named Graham who writes, Hi there. I've been listening to the podcast from the beginning, so I'm not fully caught up, but one of the episodes I listened to, you had someone on the podcast who said that pirates never really bury treasure. Hasn't it been confirmed that Captain Kidd had buried his treasure on Gardner's Island? So don't rule pirates out. Really enjoying the podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, that's a great question, my friend. I believe you're referring to a podcast I released way back in September of 2019, right at the beginning of this uh podcast run called There Be Pirates. Uh, there Be Pirates Here or something like that. I interviewed a guy named Dan Conlon. He's the author of uh, the book Pirates of the Atlantic, Robbery, Murder, and Mayhem off the Canadian East Coast. And Mr. Conlon did say in that interview that pirates do not or did not bury their treasure. And yes, you're correct, Graham, when you uh, point out that Captain Kidd did indeed bury a treasure on Gardner's Island just off the eastern shore of Long Island in New York. But Graham, the circumstances and the details behind that kid's story is what really makes the difference here, right? Okay, this past season, uh, this past off season, I mean, we produced a, um, what did we do, part one and part two of a podcast series will continue uh, about the life and times of the great Captain William Kidd, and I promise we will return to that story this summer. I get asked about that all the time. But we didn't get to this part of his story yet, so uh, let me give you kind of a little preview of what's to come in those podcasts. Uh, without giving too much away, you know, uh, in the summer of, of 1699, Kidd heads to Boston to answer charges of piracy levied against him. While he was on his way there, he stopped off at Gardner's Island, where he actually spoke to Mr. Gardner and asked if he would be allowed to hide some of his treasure there so the government doesn't take it from him when he comes ashore. Gardner grants his permission, and Kid even takes Gardner to show him exactly where he was burying it. Uh, of course, with the proviso that uh, when and if Kid should return for the treasure, should any of it be missing, Gardner would be held personally responsible. You can only imagine what that meant. Now, don't worry. Gardner was well paid by Kid for his troubles. Um, hardly the type of buried treasure story one associates with pirates, right? But the thing is, it's this story that led so many authors and screenwriters to weave these tales of buried treasure of pirates coming onto the beach and digging a big hole and sticking a chest down there. As usual, the, uh, you know... The fiction tends to be a little stranger than the truth. <laughs> and that's the case here. Yes, there is very, very, very little evidence of pirates burying treasure. They did do it, and Kid did do that. Now, again, aside from this story of Kid's desperate attempts to hold on to his wealth while facing, you know, what was the trial for his life, uh, 
aside from that, Mr. Conlon is correct. Pirates didn't bury their treasure. For the most part, they did exactly what you would think they would do with their treasure. They spent it. But Kidd's situation was unique in the annals of pirate history. So really, Graham, it isn't a very good example. And it doesn't really then render the idea that pirates didn't bury their treasure to be incorrect. Does that make sense? And is certainly also not a story that seems to say much about what might have occurred on Oak Island. Certainly nobody walked around asking the owner of Oak Island if they can bury a treasure 100 feet down. I hope that makes all sense. A great question. I love the pirate stuff. <laughs> okay, let's go now to an email from Jeff who writes, Hi, Dave. Love your podcast. I love the acoustic guitar and ocean sounds you put in. Really feel like I'm going on a mini vacation in my mind. That's the point. Uh, one thing I was wondering, have you considered making the episodes longer? It just seems they go by so quickly. Uh, let me interject here because he's got more. Um, thank you, sir. That music you hear is actually a piece of my own music, a song called Live It All Again that you could find on my CD called Around the Rock. Drop me an email if you'd like to purchase one. <laughs> okay, enough shameless plugs. But I'm serious. You can do that. Uh, oh, and longer podcasts? Really? Longer? Uh, Jeff, it, makes, it really takes me hours to produce these like 40 minute long or so podcasts i think any long there just isn't time enough in the day to do that i mean they'll get longer when we get to the off season and i'm doing interviews or something where it's just the recording that all that matters um also i couldn't bear the idea of listening to my own voice for any more than i already do but i appreciate that and i take your suggestion not only as a good suggestion but also as a compliment <laughs> thank you uh jeff continues as for the show They've really gotten bogged down by this road, haven't they? I'm curious if it is just me, but Rick just doesn't seem to have the same enthusiasm he used to. He used to be the most optimistic, and now it seems like he's just going through the motions. I get the sense he's lost his zeal. It's no longer him and his brother together to pursue their childhood dream of solving the Oak Island mystery. It's now just a TV show, and he's just playing his part. Marty actually seems to be the one selling it more this season, and he is always the skeptical one. Perhaps Marty is the one benefiting more from the arrangements made with the show's producers and more accommodating to the concessions being made. Also, what's up with Jack? He's never on the show anymore. He was my favorite. And now he only shows up once in a while when they gather in the war room. I mean, they show he is there, but he never does anything anymore. What's the, what's the deal? I've always enjoyed when Jack and Gary would go out together to metal detect certain areas. I was thinking those two even should have their own spinoff show. But now they always send someone else out with Gary. Did Jack do something wrong behind the scenes? <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. All right. Well, Jeff, I, I'm laughing because I can't speak to where Jack has been. Um, what I can tell you is we know this season was an incredible challenge for the team on, on really on almost every level. And who knows what happened or when things were filmed exactly and all that kind of stuff, things that you're seeing. I'm not aware of anything wrong. I haven't heard of any particular issue regarding Jack. Who knows? Perhaps he had to attend to something off the island and then was forced to sort of quarantine again. So there's only, you know, not that much footage with him. You never know. But he did appear just for a quick second on this episode, like you said. So he is there. And in the beginning we saw him of this episode, we saw him sitting in the swamp with a trowel, but he didn't say anything. So he's there. You know, who knows? Unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of insight into the filming process to pass along to you. I, I don't, that's not really the focus of what I want to do. Um, and I think I will leave it to other fans um, and other viewers of the show to comment on Rick and his demeanor on camera. He doesn't seem very different to me, if I'm honest. Uh, certainly not different from the last few couple of seasons. But I'll say this. I am forever reading fans on social media asking exactly this kind of thing. What is wrong with Rick? 
you're not alone at all. Um, you know, Rick is older than he was at the beginning of the of the show. The nature of the hunt is certainly, as you point out, very different than it was eight years ago. You know, things change. I, I have no idea. I, I Again, other people can comment on that. That's just not something I, I wish to speculate on. Anyway, it's a great email. Thank you for that. Let's go to Kathy who writes, Hi, Dave. I found your podcast this season. I've been watching since the beginning because I, too, read about Oak Island when I was younger. My mother was a reader of tabloid papers like the National Enquirer, and she also read one published in Canada called The Star. I believe that's where I read the story about Oak Island that was written around the time of the Restall tragedy. I would have been a teenager at the time. My question and thoughts are about the Stone Road. If the swamp was man-made and the road was built before the swamp was there, what was its purpose? Was this area too marshy or muddy for large carts and oxen to travel without a road? The rest of the island doesn't look like carts and oxen would need a road after brush and trees were cut down. My theory is that the road was built to haul equipment and supplies for some kind of military encampment. It could have been French or English military that built it as some kind of staging point. I have no idea as to why the swamp that covered it was created. Um, Great show, and I look forward to uh, going back and listening to previous podcasts that I've missed. Keep up the good work, Kathy. Okay, Kathy. Um, I think really the best way for me to answer this is by saying we all just kind of need to keep watching here to get something that might be an answer to your question. Uh, a military encampment or operation of some kind makes sense, but it would still seem to require a very clandestine element for sure. Uh, since we have no record of any military presence on Oak Island pre-1795 or so, um, that would make sense. And really, you wouldn't need a road to just get soldiers on and off a ship. The road, at least to me, suggests something maybe more intense and certainly more laborious than just an encampment. And also, it puts in an element of time to this whole thing, meaning we're talking about people being here for quite some time in order to build this road and then accomplish whatever it was built for. And then apparently cover the road back up when they were done, you know. That's the crazy part about all this, right? Whatever this was, whoever built it, and for whatever reason, it's all been lost to history. Anyway, let's sit tight, Kathy, and ask me this question again towards the end of the season. Maybe we'll have a better idea. Okay, let's go to our friend Jock. Jock never fails to get me thinking, really, and giving me homework here. Uh, He writes, hi, Dave. As usual, thanks for creating the podcast and discussion group. Your time commitment is appreciated. Really helps to try to unravel the questions that come out after viewing this show since the beginning. Uh, thank you, John. At the beginning of every season, I watch this show and I keep thinking, "Quote: Will they discover something of significance?" That <laughs> was my clotworthy. What do you think? Uh, gold versus ox shoe nails, nails and buttons. You know, uh, I f- I figured that if I pull a core of, sil- of solid gold, if they pull a core of solid gold, like drilling into a treasure chest or the Ark of the Covenant. Would the Nova Scotia government shut them down to do a full-blown, intense and slow archaeological dig like in Egypt, gridded one layer at a time? If so, if that major discovery happened, wouldn't it be hard to hide that secret? There are a lot of workers on the island, drillers, History Channel people, and the Oak Island team seems to get larger every year. There's also a lot of bars in Nova Scotia. Sure is. So each year at the beginning of the season, or even in the middle, I tell my wife, If it's not in the Halifax Chronicle Herald or CBC News, they must have found they must not have found the big one. One of these days, I intend to count the number of times they say the word treasure on the show. Don't do that, Jock. Certainly not with drinking. Uh, What do you think? Cheers. Okay, Jock, there is. Let me tell you this. I don't know how dialed in you are to the social media. And I'm uh, 
not ours, but other social media groups of Oak Island fans. And I'm slightly not I'm not really all in on a lot of that stuff. Um, but what I do know is that there is an entire group of folks on social media who are very convinced that the Laginas have already found the treasure or at least perhaps already found answers to the mystery. Let's put it that way. And they found it a few seasons back. And for the last few years, they've just been hiding it from all of us, all for the purpose of keeping the show going. They believe, and like I said, they're quite convinced that the cast and the crew and the producers and I guess everyone involved here have been keeping this fact a secret, all for the sake of producing just a few more seasons of television. But I agree with you, Jack, that idea just seems preposterous to me and very, very difficult to actually pull off. And that's the thing, right? And I don't really see what the payoff is in risking their credibility and risking their, you know, any potential trouble with the Canadian government just to produce a few extra seasons of a show. Listen, I understand the show makes money. It makes money for everybody, but not that much money. This isn't Amazon here we're talking about. No, unfortunately, I think they're still looking And unfortunately, I think the chances are they'll still be looking even after maybe the History Channel loses interest in all this. Anyway, that's my thoughts, Jock. Let's go to Doug now who writes, Dave, I just found your podcast this year. Great job. Thanks for being a voice of reason. I have a question unrelated to the most recent episodes that bothers me. Last year, maybe, it all kind of blends together. A diver went down to see one looking for the gold-colored spots. As he scraped one off, a coin-like item floated past his hand and disappeared into the depths. Unfortunately, the diver is out of time and visibility is zero, so he comes up. Did they ever go back and scrape the sides and collect the spoils? It seems like the guys on the island saw a coin-type thing float past the diver's fingers and then just moved on. This could have been the real first treasure on Oak Island. And the first family of Oak Island is busy digging up what could be a road. Did I miss something? Why not put something at the bottom of C1 to collect everything that falls off and scrape the sides several inches deep and bring up the spoils? I know it's more difficult than I stated, but come on, they could get it done. Thanks, Doug. Well, Doug, first, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for listening, and we're glad to have you here. Um, Keep writing. Love to have your participation. Let me let you in on something that, uh, as a new listener... You may not be aware of something that I say all the time here on Digging Oak Island, something that I promise you, if you keep listening, you will soon be sick of hearing me (laughs) say this (laughs) over and over again. But here's the simple thing. If they find an artifact or the evidence of an artifact, something that looks potentially incredible, but said artifact never is seemingly never heard from again, it's never cleaned up. We never extract it or take it up to an expert to look at. Nothing. Then the show's very silence on the subject is all the information you need to determine for yourself why you have not heard anything more about it. Now, keep that in mind. Having said all that, I think, though, with this particular example, there might be another element. There might be a good excuse here. In order to really get down there into C1, you probably need one of those giant oscillators with a huge can to stick in the ground to get to the bottom, you know, to send a diver down there, which is something that you said. But there's also the possibility of putting a hammer grab down there and other things, as you mentioned. 
But I think this year that's a lot more difficult due to the COVID shutdown between the, you know, with the border between the U.S. and Canada being shut down. Vanessa Lucido and her crew who do that incredible work were not able to get to the island this past summer. So anything like that's going to have to be done next year and couldn't be done this year. So in that regard, in that one regard, it makes sense why they were unable to follow up, why they didn't follow up right away. Well, that's a great question. Maybe they did. Who knows? And just didn't find anything. Next year, we're going to possibly get this quote unquote big dig. So who knows? Thank you again, Doug. And I certainly hope to hear from you again. Let's go now to Jeremy in Ontario. He writes, love the show, love your podcast, love the mystery, love Carmen Leg. <laughs> I have a few items that I'd like to discuss. First, with the boreholes being drilled, why don't the guys just drop a camera down and see what's down there? You might find walls in the tunnels that could enable them which way to drill to know which way to drill next. It really reminds me of the old battleship board game. <laughs> Let me interject here. It really does, right? I mean, when they say C3, uh, that's what they're doing, right? Essentially calling out a location on a grid like an old battleship game. Hey, wait a minute. Maybe we can get the creators of Battleship to license out an Oak Island version for us. What do you think? You know, C2, you hit a wooden shaft. <laughs> B3, you hit the Ark of the Covenant. We might be onto something here, guys. Uh, you know, if we get this done, Jeremy, we could split the royalties. Uh, and also, do you think a camera down such a small hole would be very useful? I mean, I guess C1 was about this small when they first found Charles's gold-colored thingamajig, uh, you know, with a little camera. I mean, maybe they can do that. But I, here's the thing. I always default to this. These guys know the resources at their disposal. It's certainly something as simple as that. And I really do think, especially with the cameras there and the work they're trying to get done, they'll do anything they think might be helpful and might show something that's exciting. Uh, I mean, I guess I'm just, my point is, Jeremy, they probably thought of that. Anyway, he continues. Second, when the carbon dating of the wood stakes may seem odd for the dating as they are around a century older than they thought, What's to say the stakes may not have been used until decades later after the trees were cut down? For instance, a tree was cut down in 1685, but the wood was not used for that purpose until 1730. Therefore, the actual date of the wood isn't as important as we may think. Perhaps I'm way off, but it's so much fun speculating. Keep up that fantastic, honest work. Cheers from Woodstock, Ontario. Jeremy. Okay, Jeremy, thank you for the email. Um, with that one in mind, with your questions in mind, I want to bring in actually another email. This one comes from Keith, who's down in Texas, Lone Star State, and he writes, Hello, this is my first email. Probably won't be my last. Great, Keith. Keep them coming. Uh, this last episode had multiple survey spikes tested with a wide range of dates. I've always had a suspicion that carbon dating of wood might not be accurate or is being misinterpreted. I finally went down a Google rabbit hole. I found that carbon dating tells you when the wood died, and there is something called old wood effect. There are different explanations and descriptions of this. One is using repurposed wood. Let's say a shaft was built using wood from an old ship. The date of the wood is when the tree was cut down, not when it was installed into the shaft. Another is the center of the tree is older than the outer bands. If a piece of wood was planed down, you have removed the younger portion and are getting a false older date. There is also an effect from the spot picked to test. The spot might have prematurely died due to insects or fungus while the tree itself was still alive. 
If you have a number of spikes, all similar, and found in the same location, the the conclusion should be to go with the youngest date. But we all know which date the narrator will focus. Love the podcast, Keith. Keith, thank you so, so much for that. The way you put that is exactly the kind of question a lot of people have. What are the variables with carbon dating? And I think you did a fantastic job for us there. Thank you so much. Um, Okay, let me start this by saying um, the idea of repurposing wood for this use makes very little sense to me. Because if you think about it, if we're talking about the dates when we're talking about it, if we're talking about, you know, before the 1790s when houses started being built on Oak Island, then it would have to come, this wood would have to come from a ship because there weren't any houses or barns in the island or even anywhere really in that immediate area the earlier you go back, right? And honestly, Keith, breaking apart a ship and using that wood to build the cribbing of a shaft, I mean, really? I've heard this argument and I've said this so many times over the years. That just doesn't make any sense to me. And people have tried to convince me I'm wrong, but it just makes no sense. Folks, why would anyone do that? (laughs) First, are you saying they had a spare ship hanging around that they could take apart and use? And do you really think that dismantling a ship and finding just the right size piece of lumber for the job is somehow easier than just cutting down one of the thousands of trees surrounding you and then cutting that down to just the right size for whatever you need? Besides the incredible logistics of trying to dismantle a ship on a beach compared to just taking an axe to a tree on the side. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Repurposed wood, in my mind, is a long shot. It's not completely out of the question, but it's a long shot. And dismantling a ship to make a shaft is, I mean... It just, of all the options available on Oak Island, that just does not seem like a sensible option to me. But your other points are fantastic, and they really should be talked about on the show when this dating information is presented. He also sent me some homework to do, which I have to get to about this. But anyway, listen, we've said this before, but it bears repeating here, especially since that testing that's been done the last couple of weeks. The dendrochronology testing, the tree ring testing, that is the most accurate kind to use. But that assumes that you have an intact cross-section of a tree to work with. Carbon dating really does leave a lot of variables open. And like I said, Keith, you did just a great job here in answering the mystery from last week's show about the similar stakes found next to each other being from such widely different dates. Perhaps, in fact, they're not that dissimilar at all. You would think one of the scientists might, uh, you know, do what you did here, Keith, and Google it. (laughs) Maybe they did, uh, and it just got edited out. Who knows? Anyway, thank you again for that incredible work and for answering that mystery. I've been trying to figure out a way. I always had sort of that information in the back of my head, but didn't really know how to say it right. But I think that part that you write there, um, you know, about a, a piece of wood being planed and then therefore the older part of the wood being taken off, and now you're testing wood that's much older, because you're going into the middle of the log uh, is such a great, a great, you know, everybody can visualize that and see where the problem is. Anyway, incredible work. Let's go now to our friend Ginger who writes, I'm a fan of the TV show Homicide Hunter. Don't know that one. Uh, regarding the detective career of real life retired detective Joe Kenda. They have quite a following and host an annual cruise where we all solve a mock murder and have a bunch of presentations and get to meet the cast and Mr. and Mrs. Kenda. 
Reason for sharing this. How fun would it be to coordinate a travel group to Oak Island with you coordinating a travel agency? You could build an agenda and charge fees in addition to the travel expense, which would cover your expense and put you in position to get a good backstage pass access to stuff, being the coordinator planner. It's a possible source of income for your passion for the island. Just a thought, Ginger. Uh, Ginger, I also like the idea of doing a cruise. I mean, come on now. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for the suggestion, but I have to admit... The effort that idea requires is way beyond my capacity and my level of free time that's available to dedicate to any such project. Um, But I have to admit, it sounds like a great idea. That's why I wanted to read this email on the podcast, because maybe there is someone out there who can put this all together for us, or even a cruise, an Oak Island cruise. Man, that'd be great. And I'll promise you now, Ginger, I'll be more than happy to help in any way I can. Uh, We can even record an episode there. You know, at the island or maybe at the pool bar if we choose a cruise. <laughs> I think I'm a little I think I'm a little fixated on the cruise idea. Anyway, thank you once again, Ginger, for writing in. It's time now to turn to our friend Daryl, who, along with Jock and a couple of others, really have offered so much of their time and energy to this podcast just with their own research and time. They give me a lot of homework to do. Can't get to all of it sometimes. Um And again, it's not just the two of them. There's a few others. Can't thank you folks enough for this. Anyway, Daryl writes, while wandering aimlessly around the proverbial rabbit hole, I got thinking about something you said. I'm going to paraphrase. No matter what is said by the archaeologists or geologists on the show, the producers are only going to let us hear what they want us to hear. So on the info net, I went, I didn't know the French Acadians and Mi'kmaq warriors attacked Lunenburg's Protestant settlers several times in the early and mid-1700s. A number of men were killed. A wife of one of the deceased and his children were taken to Quebec as hostages and kept for ransom. The British commenced to constructing several garrisons and blockhouses to protect the settlers. There must have been an urgent requirement for bricks, pine tar, lumber, etc. In colonial times, bricks were manufactured on the spot or relatively nearby. Oak Island would have been the ideal location. Raw materials of clay and pine trees, fuel for the kilns, encampment and work sites surrounding by water for increased protection against attack, a hidden harbor, lagoon to receive small cargo vessels for the distribution of the brick and tar to the construction sites situated central to all the construction sites and not far from the mainland. A road, a paved storage area, and a pier would be required, a construction suitable for oxen and heavy carts laden with bricks. A pine tar kiln has been confirmed on lot 15. Ox shoes discovered and indications of a road heading in that direction. A brick kiln has not been discovered. My research informs me a brick kiln would have been disassembled and these bricks would have also been used for the construction of other military structures. If one were lucky enough to discover a brick kiln site from this era, under the circumstances, they might notice a depression in the ground upon a hill. Maybe puddles of clay, charcoal near a road, leading to a pier. Opine. Cheers, Daryl. Daryl, and let's add blue clay, right? A blue clay mine. Okay, it seems like I'm going to bang this drum for the rest of the season, so let's get the drumsticks out now, shall we? In episode 18 of last season, Aaron Taylor and Ian Spoon concluded, quote, the eye was excavated to extract clay. End quote. Meaning the eye of the swamp was, for all intents and purposes, a clay mine. This seemed to all of us like an amazing lead for this team to follow. 
something that really might lead to answers for what all of this in the swamp is actually all about. But honestly, if you didn't see that episode last year, you'd have no earthly clue now that such a discovery or such conclusions by experts were ever even made. We asked at the time, who would have mined clay here and for what reason? This would have been a fantastic topic for the team to research this year. But again, crickets. And even now, when we think this road is heading towards the eye, we fail on each and every occasion to answer the question, what could they have needed this road for, which seems to get asked every darn week, with the obvious answer, the one they got themselves. It was made for moving clay from the eye of the swamp to wherever they were taking it. Daryl, my point is twofold here. One, and I've said this before, at the current moment, we do not have enough evidence connecting this road or even the eye of the swamp with any activity in the money pit. Certainly not with a treasure of any kind. That doesn't mean we won't get some, but we don't at this point. While this work at the swamp is amazing and fascinating, it does not mean this was built for burying treasure. There are hundreds of possible explanations for what this could be. They have, and all of them, <laughs> very few of them, I should say, have nothing to do with the Knights Templar, uh, William Shakespeare, or anything like that. Thank you, Daryl. You've also given me some, you know, again, more homework to do. Now, with all that in mind, let's turn to another person who's been such an incredible help to this podcast, Peter, who writes, I'm confused. This road is well below the soil line in many places. Why? It's not sediment since it goes away from the swamp. Wasn't covered, right? Did they dig a trench so it wasn't easily seen from passing ships, then later covered to hide the evidence of this major undertaking? Or is it a combination including that maybe it all sunk in the ground? The more road they find, the more I'm convinced this is special, not something farmers or fishermen might have constructed, even gradually over many years. Peter, for all our sakes... <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're correct. Now, I've gotten a few emails like this asking about what the road might be and for what purpose it might have been built to, you know? And you'll notice that I haven't really answered any of those. That's because I love the speculation. And all of these emails are, are really helping sort of in my thought process here. But I feel like if I say too much now, I'm kind of getting out over my skis a bit. You know what I mean? I think, keep them coming, let's keep talking about it, but I don't think I'm ready to sort of give you a definitive answer until I see a lot more than this. And some of the stuff we saw today in this episode that we're about to review, I think kind of adds a little more of an element of mystery and really makes me want to just kind of hang on a little bit. Anyway, thank you once again to everyone for your emails and messages. Don't forget, if you would like to email me, you can do so, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. Right, it's time to turn now <laughs> to season eight, episode nineteen of the Curse of Oak Island, called "A Loose Cannonball." And I want to begin this review um, with the first war room theorist meeting we've had in a couple of weeks. Uh, I used to call them crackpot meetings, but I'm not going to do that this time because the focus of this meeting is author James McQuiston, who is by no means, in my mind, a crackpot. <laughs> 
Now, whenever these show these scenes start to come on, I really sort of get up and uh, you know sit up straight and get my pen ready. I love these scenes. Um, just about everything you heard here in this scene can be heard in much more detail in our November 3rd, 2020 podcast, where we did a really great interview with Mr. McQuist, and he talked a lot about this stuff, especially about the connection of Oak Island to the Mayflower of the Plymouth Colony. Now, I know Mr. McQuiston has been coming here with amazing stuff, um, you know, and he's even now coming up with, uh, as as I've spoken to him, coming up with even more than than what he talked about in our first or in our last interview. Um, but none of that seemed to be added here in this show. So, what's the point of all this? Basically, Mr. McQuiston's research has found what really is an astounding connection between Oak Island and the three groups he named, the Freemasons, the Knights Baronet, and really astonishingly, the Plymouth Colony and the Mayflower. Now, for some reason, there are so many connections between people who kind of were involved in the Oak Island treasure hunt or may have owned land or all sorts of things related to Oak Island that these people are also related to those three groups, including the Plymouth Colony. For some reason, the show only showed us, really only showed us the connection with the FDR. Trust me when I tell you, read his books. The thrust of all this um, is that James is pretty close to proving, in my mind, that many people knew that something weird, something of interest was on Oak Island, be it a treasure, and he, he thinks it is, um, or whatever you might think it is. But people long before Oak Island became a, a cultural phenomenon of a mystery, there were many people who knew about this and who came there looking for it. Now, this could these people have predated the original discovery? Were the original discoverers not there on purpose? You know, again, read his books. Uh, I can't believe in this war room theory, how much they must have left out. I mean, you know, every time we talk to Mr. McQuiston, he tells us about how he's on with them for hours. And then you get really what is a few minutes of a scene. Just why they didn't just allow the guy to talk some more about this relationship to the Plymouth Colony is, I mean, mean, it is incredible, the, the, the connections he found. So for you, I really do recommend that you read his books. Uh, and listen to that podcast. I'm convinced that James McQuiston's theory is the most comprehensive and well-researched theory out there right now. All of his stuff is required reading for Oak Island fans, if apparently not for Prometheus. If you want to find, listen, there's a lot of sort of skeptical theories that are making the rounds out there now, but as far as a treasure theory that is currently unfolding in front of us, McQuiston's is the best. Just Google the guy and start reading. Okay, let's head over to the Money Pit, uh, where Terry Matheson and Charles Barkhouse are continuing the project we've seen for the last few weeks of uh, following evidence of what is an apparent tunnel 
at around 87 feet deep in the northwest portion of the Money Pit area. Now, if you're not caught up on our on our podcast, I suggest you go back and listen. We did a lot on this in the last couple of weeks, kind of some background information, why that 87 feet is significant. Um, anyway, here we see them digging a new hole. I forget the name of it. It was another one of those battleship names. And they find more wood at the same depth. Now, I think Terry said that this no, new hole that they're digging here, it was, he said, I think five feet from C1, the hole we mentioned before, the Charles Barkhouse hole with the possible gold in there. Later in the episode, we have a sort of a money pit related scene where Steve Guptill is working with Michael John to sift through the spoils of a whole, I think another battleship one, E25.2, I forget. Uh, I might have that one wrong. <laughs> uh, but I always find it funny that Steve Guptill, this this surveyor, is sifting through the spoils. I mean, you know, uh, clearly not his uh, area of expertise, but you see here how some of these guys, Steve and Charles and these guys, really, they'll do anything. You know, they're just in part of the team here and they'll do whatever it takes and i I like to see that i thought the idea of digging this far from the northwest uh, you know far up to the northwest all the way up by c1 was kind of crazy before but this hole that they're looking through the spoils for was dug in 2018 and it's apparently one that was close to these new holes so maybe we're i don't know again i just wish they would visualize this stuff for us i wish every time they mention a hole especially one like this where we're seeing the you know, a new spoils being sifted through. I wish they would show us exactly where this hole was dug and in relation to the other ones. It would just be so much easier for us. But again, instead, we're just sort of going with what the narrator tells us. And Lord knows that isn't always helpful. Anyway, Steve pulls out something that looks a little bit like it could be coconut fiber, although it was never confirmed and um, never really looked at by anybody else. So uh, let's see. If we ever hear from this little piece of fiber again, be interesting if that is coconut fiber. Um, Again, warning, if you don't hear from it, you know it probably wasn't. Anyway, uh, Michael John finds a very weird-looking kind of round thing. (laughs) As soon as they pulled it out, I said to my wife exactly what Steve and Michael say to each other, that it looked like a piece of grape shot. Uh, Grape shot is uh, uh, ammunition. You'd put a load of grape shot into a cannon and you'd fire it off and it would be almost like a shotgun effect where it would splay across wherever you were shooting it towards. Now, the narrator says that grape shot was used, quote unquote, used to sink warships. Uh, Listen, grape shot was used in many, many, many artillery applications, not just for sinking ships. It's not just a naval ammunition. It was used in basically every artillery application you can think of, and probably most often on land against armies approaching. Now, Marty takes this artifact, this little round thing, to the interpretive center to show it to Gary, uh, Gary Drayton, the metal detector, and Laird Niven, the archaeologist. Now, I Laird doesn't seem to have a whole lot to say on it, which is kind of curious. He makes a couple of sort of strange faces. Uh, So I I have to wonder what the editors know that we don't. Uh, But Gary declares it to be what he calls. I have a hard time figuring out what he was saying here, but I think he was saying a dress stone. And then he called it a gun stone, which makes more sense to me. Now, I'm not again, I'm not an expert on ammunition. And Gary knows a lot more about this than I do. But, I mean, I've never heard this expression dress stone before. I don't know what it is. Gunstones, I have heard, but only in relation to cannons. Um, you know, using a big stone as in place of a cannonball. 
Uh, he says they use them in blunderbuss, which was like sort of an old flintlock shotgun type of thing. It makes sense. I guess it could be used in something like that. I have no idea. I mean, if that is what this is, if this is a piece of ammunition, um, you know, finding an old piece of ammunition in an area that was essentially a frontier, especially one who we now know, uh, thanks to one of our listeners, was a frontier that was contested. Um, you know, when these firearms would have been in use, it seems to make plenty of sense that you would find such a thing. I'm not sure even if we do take the time to go over and confirm that this is, in fact, a gunstone, a piece of ammunition. I'm not sure that that really helps the narrative here at all. Anyway, interesting little find. Let's finish up over at the swamp. Um, this has really been the focus here, in this, especially in this episode, really the focus of what's going on. Now, the episode begins with Rick meeting with archaeologists Miriam Emerald and Aaron Taylor, who are continuing their project of uncovering the possible stone road and finding exactly where it might lead. There's a nice visual here. Um, you know, we, we always, I got to point out when they do good visuals because they're few and far between sometimes. It's a nice visual here showing up this possible fork in the road that we've been discussing a lot in the last couple of weeks. Um, I said last week that this road was not going to tell us much about the treasure. And I think Marty even puts that best. I mean, maybe he didn't mean to put it like that, but he says that it, quote unquote, might lead us to information. So I, again, I, I think we're seeing some incredible stuff discovered here, just like in the in Smith's Cove. But Smith's Cove, you can see, you you know the actual concrete connection between Smith's Cove and the money pit, or at least we know the theory, right, of the booby trap tunnels running from Smith's Cove. We don't really have anything other than, you know, a mysterious vibe that's connecting the swamp yet with the money pit. We got to kind of find that connection. Anyway, as they dig... Taylor finds stones that he says look very different. And then he starts describing them as possibly for a cellar or a foundation. Really interesting. Now, the show doesn't give us, here's my complaint again, doesn't really give us a good visualization of this. There's no side-by-side -side comparison with these stones for the cellar and the ones for the road. So we, we really just kind of got to take his word for it. Later, even Ian Spooner, the Swamp Doctor, comes in to have a look. And he describes what this is as rock on rock and says it's stacked. Again, there's no visual for us as viewers to understand exactly what he's saying. So we just kind of have to take his word for it on this. Also in this scene, Taylor says he believes a branch of this road leads towards the eye of the swamp. Here is where I was hoping, against all hope, I guess, that we would get a reference or at least an explanation to the blue clay from last season that we discussed earlier. Here it is. If this goes towards this, the eye of the swamp, then we could stop asking, we don't know why this was built, and we could stop saying it was built for treasure. If we know blue clay was extracted, and a lot of it, I don't know how much, if we can even figure out if it was a lot or not, then doesn't a road being built to offload this make all the sense in the world? Why is this so difficult to put together? I don't really understand. Later, Gary's detecting around this foundation and he finds a caster. Now, a caster is like a, a, a wheel set under a cart, right? So if you take a dolly and flip it over, the whole thing is the caster, the wheel and the, um, the housing for the wheel itself. 
Now, he says when he looked at it that it's really old. And I've paused on this a few times and I've looked at it. I can't say that I can agree entirely. I can't say I disagree either. He's holding it. Um, It just didn't look all that old to me. But, you know, if we see it again, if we see it cleaned up and we see it kind of put in as evidence, then we know. If we don't see it again, (laughs) as I tell you, then we also know. Now, towards the end of the episode, we see Miriam Amaral joined by uh, Rick Lagina, Steve Guptill, and Michael John to uh, help out in digging this feature, this this cellar feature that we see. Great little side note. In this point, um, Michael John has been upgraded to Treasure Hunter. Sir, let me warn you now. There are bad things that come with that label, I have to tell you, including a desire to always try and find this treasure. <laughs> While digging, uh, Mr. John finds a small void, a hole or a cavity in the ground, a strange-looking little void there. Now, this is followed by Rick Lagina, obviously having a great time uh, talking to his friends here and speculating about what this hole might be. But really, that's all this really was, right? It's just sort of Rick having fun. You could tell from the look on his face. Now, it wasn't all made up out of whole cloth. Rick mentions that uh, this area that they're digging is very close to the home of Anthony Graves. Uh, Rick says that Graves is, he calls him every bit the enigma of, that Samuel Ball is, and he's not wrong. Graves bought a lot of, isle, of land on Oak Island, including the money pit. But he was always just sort of on the periphery of the, the search, He was always there for many, many years, but never directly involved. And then he talks about this legend. And let me read to you from Darcy O'Connor's incredible book, The Secret Treasure of Oak Island, where he talks just a little bit about Anthony Graves and this legend. He writes, One longstanding legend concerns Anthony Graves, who purchased much of the island after John Smith's death in 1857. Graves built his house on Juju's Cove and lived there until he died in 1888. Graves is rumored to have occasionally purchased supplies on the mainland with Spanish coins of gold or silver. In 1930, a silver Spanish coin dated 1785 was found near the foundation of his house. Another coin, a Spanish Maravedie, said to have dated to 1598, was supposedly found in in 1965 near Judri's Cove, though the coin's authenticity is suspect. The grave story would seem to be nothing more than gossip, since his own family wasn't even aware of it. Graves' granddaughter, Florence Eisenhower, told Mel Chapel in 1955 that she hadn't heard of any discovery of treasure by her grandfather. But she did say that her aunt, Sophia Sellers, Graves' eldest daughter, quote, believed that if any treasure were buried on Oak Island, it was carried away because she remembered a vessel coming into the cove one evening and it disappeared or departed before morning. And there were marks in the sand on the shore like a barrel having been rolled out, end quote. So as you can see, and the reason why I read that to you is around a mystery like this, there is always legend. There is always rumor. Do we know Anthony Graves paid for things with Spanish gold uh, from, a, from a treasure that he found? No, we don't know that. Um, could it easily be that somebody found a Spanish coin in 1930 and then the legends evolved after that? Yes, it absolutely could. So it's hard to sift through all of this sometimes, and that is the challenge. But like I said, 
Graves is kind of a mystery. But the thing here is when it comes to what we're seeing here, when it comes to this void, this hole, this discovery, what does all this mean, right? What are we, what are we getting here? The problem is, as of right now, what we have is a hole in the ground. Nothing more, nothing less, a hole in the ground. It's not, as far as we know, it's not a place anybody stored treasure, not a place anybody stored even their wine. We don't know anything about it. So we just kind of have to sit tight and wait and see and not jump to conclusions. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. There was also a mention again in the show about the weather getting cooler. So, you know, we've gone to, what, like 23 episodes last couple seasons. We might not get that far this year. Who knows? Uh, anyway, please subscribe to the show if you don't already. Uh, you know, anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you are enjoying the show, please, please, please do me a favor. Leave us a five-star rating and a review on the Apple Podcasts or wherever you can do that. Uh, it helps to get the word out on the show, and it's um, you know actually helps to bring more listeners to us. A big thank you to everyone who's done that already. I really do appreciate you taking the time out to do that, and I especially thank you for the kind words about the show. Also, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you could do so via email is the best way, really, at digginoakisland at gmail.com. A little warning I like to tell you here. Keep in mind, if you send me an email or even a message on uh, one of the social media platforms, that I might just answer that here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read to the listening audience, just make a note of that for me, and I'll do my best to respond. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at Diggin' Oak Island. Give us a like or a follow there. It'd be much appreciated. It's a great way to kind of follow along what we're doing on the show and also to interact with other listeners. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Diggin' Oak Island.